Thanks, Benjamin. We're so glad to have so many gifted people leading us, pointing us to Jesus. Amen? Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to our services today. I want to invite you to consider a couple things. First of all, we have a Christmas Eve series of services tomorrow night, so we still have a lot of these left over. I want to put out a, a, an idea, right? Nothing ventured, nothing gained. So somebody once said, when it comes to the Lord's work, when it's all said and done, lot said, little done. So I invite you to do something. Take one of these, we have them out in the lobby, and invite someone, right? How hard is that? God in his sovereignty, the reason I'm a pastor right now is because one day somebody walked up to this knucklehead and said, hey, you want to come to church? And I said, yeah. And the word of God just captured my heart. And so, invite somebody. Just give them this. If not, makes good birdcage liner. We can't use them after tomorrow anyway, but pray about it. Even somebody you're like, ah, oh, my Uncle Larry, he'd be the last guy. Invite Uncle Larry. God works in, in, in ways that we can't even understand. So be in prayer, especially Christians. The Holy Spirit is working in our church, and we know that he uses prayer. A couple other things. Uh, tomorrow night, we won't be having the cafe. So, B-Y-O-C, bring your own coffee. If you need coffee that late, you need a nap anyway. So, But we have three services, 2.34 and 6. I want to encourage you, the 4 o'clock service, everybody, that's the, the one everybody wants to go to. If you don't have children, if you wouldn't mind coming to one of the others, particularly the 6, um, we, we would really appreciate it. We still need a couple more helpers. I know that this need will be met, but we need some more ushers for 6 p.m. We need a shuttle driver for 4 p.m., and we need kids-safe workers for four and six. Now, the problem is whenever we say people that we need, everybody thinks, well, somebody else will do that. Well, this morning I'm here to tell you that that somebody is you, okay? <laughs> so don't assume. So you can go to the information desk afterward, and we would thank the Lord if you're willing to uh, work with the kids either at four or six or drive the shuttle or be an usher at six. A couple other things. We have been blessed to have through the ministry of Campus Crusade and some donors, uh, copies of the Jesus film. This is an outstanding video. Millions of people have watched it. It's the life of Jesus from the Gospel of Luke. Very well done. And it's a great opportunity for people to just see and hear the Word of God and see the Lord Jesus, not him personally, obviously, but, but, but the story of Jesus. And so we have these for free. There's actually three... Um, different stories on her. Magdalena, a ministry uh, particularly for ladies, the ministry of Jesus to, to Magdalena, and then the life of Jesus, and then there's the story of Jesus for children, which I just told my daughter this morning. This is the one I'm looking forward to showing to my grandkids. But it's also in eight different languages. So if you know someone who speaks Spanish, Hindi, Mandarin, French, Urdu, Arabic, or Vietnamese, so please, these are for free. They're right outside um, at the at the bookstore there and pray that you might give these to someone for gifts. Say, hey, listen, love for you to watch this and um, let's, let's reconnect and talk about what you thought about it. Or welcome to come over to my house, let's watch it together. So be in prayer for that as well. And then finally, I want to mention something about end of year giving. If you've been here enough, you'll understand that we don't make a big deal about giving. We're not here to get your money. There's so many people that think, ah, churches are just trying to get our money. In five minutes they're talking about money. That's not true and we don't need your money, and God does not need your money. And if you're not a Christian, don't waste your time thinking that somehow giving money to God is, is somehow going to earn his favor. God wants to give to you a gift of everlasting life. But if you are a Christian, it's a privilege, it's a responsibility, and it's part of being a, a Christ follower to give, to give generously, to give by faith, and to support the Lord's work. And we're thankful for all of you that are giving. But remember, at the end of the year, for those of you who recognize that our government may remove this at some point, but for now, you get a tax-deductible um, credit when you give to the Lord's work. Now, some people go, well, I don't want to give to get money back. I, and I got a great idea. Give, get a receipt, get money back from the government, and then give that to Jesus. I think Jesus could use it way more than Uncle Sam, amen? So, but pray about that. Some of you are in a position, and from time to time, the Lord has blessed 
Um, some of you, the Bible says, for those of you who are rich, be generous and ready to share. And we're all rich in some way. So constantly as I'm trying to disciple our flock, you'll hear me talk about the giving ladder, okay? If you never give and you're a Christian, it's time to get on the gospel giving ladder. This is not optional. This is what Jesus wants us to do, to learn to give. So start giving regularly and keep a record. Just think about how much am I giving and then try to proportionally increase that and watch how the Lord given it shall be given to you. Trust me, I don't know what you give. The pastors don't know. We're not trying to get a new Mercedes. We're not going give, give. The children have to live. We're not trying to fleece you. But we have some exciting things God's doing here and there's more that we could do as the Lord continues to raise up people who give generously to the Lord. So thank you so much for giving. Be in prayer. I'd love to see us pay off this building. We're looking into a number of exciting projects and ministries. All right, next. If you have a Bible this morning, open it to the book of Hebrews chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. We have plenty of extra, so feel free to raise your hand. We will give you a Bible. There you go. This morning, we're going to explore a second sermon on the subject of why did Jesus become a man? Most people, that's not even in their mind when they think of Christmas. Like, what do you mean Jesus became a man? That's the whole point. The point of Christmas is that God's son Jesus came down to earth. We mentioned last week that famous Christmas carol, what child is this? And, and there's three words that come to mind as I think about God becoming a man. The first one is mystery. The Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, great is the mystery that God would become a man, right? Like, that's crazy. That's, that's staggering. Like, what? I was talking to this, this doctor the other day, a Jewish doctor, and he said, do you realize how big the universe is? And I, he said, it's billions of light years. He's telling me how big it is. And I'm going, yeah, no, I get it. I, I, it's big. And, and he goes, and there's an intelligent designer. And I go, yeah, I agree with that. I just happen to know who he is. His name is Jesus, right? But the idea that the God who created us, so when anybody says, there's no God, you just look around, I'm going, good grief, his, his fingerprints are everywhere, right? But the God who created us, the Bible says, God became a man. That's, that's mind-boggling, that's a mystery. Secondly, though, it's not just mystery, but it's humility. Wait, what? God came down to earth and became a man. Talk about getting a demotion. Remember when the planet Pluto got kicked out, right? We actually, there's a verb in the dictionary now called Plutoed, right? Did you get Plutoed at work? You got kicked out? Talk about going from the Beverly Hillbillies moving up to Galilee. Jesus left heaven. The Bible says, though he was rich, he became poor, right? What a staggering reversal of humility the Bible says, have this attitude in Christ. Even though he was God, he didn't think that was something to be grasped. He didn't go, I'm not going down there and limiting myself, wearing a diaper. What humility. The Bible says Jesus, even though he was equal with God, did not regard that something to be grasped. But he emptied himself, took the form of a man, and he humbled himself. There's no greater act of humility for Jesus to come and humble himself and obediently go up to that cross and die. But the third and I can't help but think of this word is love. <clears throat> love. I mean, that's, that's what Christmas is. It's about God so loved the world that he gave his only son. If you are wondering whether God loves you, most people look in all the wrong places. If he loves me, then why don't I have good health? If he loves me, why don't I have a good job? If he loves me, why don't I have a wonderful spouse? If he loves... Listen... Here's how I can tell you, you can know for sure God loves you. The Bible says, by this we know that God loved us. He sent his son to die for us. When Jesus was in that little manger, he came on a mission. I didn't come to be served, he said, to give my life. The essence of Christmas is God loves you. He already gave you a gift. Hey, God, what are you getting me for Christmas? I already gave it to you. And if I didn't spare my own son for you, how will I not freely give you all things? However, what I want you to, to think about is that the New Testament reveals there are a number of reasons why Jesus came to earth. It wasn't singular. It's, 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 it's multifaceted, and, and we're going to learn five of them this morning, but I, I want you to do something, and I'm going to hold you accountable to this. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 5, by this time, you ought to be teachers, so I want you to not have to be taught again the elementary principles. One of the greatest ways to learn something is to try to teach it. So I'm going to teach you these five things right from the Bible. 
You're going to jot them down, write a verse down, and then I want you to teach it to somebody. If you can find somebody that will listen. Preach it on the street corner if no one will listen to you. But teach it to your children. These are gospel truths. These are not just fun little stories. Okay? And you can communicate these. I try to keep it relevant, simple. It's nothing fancy or flowery that you have to be a theologian. Simple truths from the Bible about why Jesus became a man. So let's pray. Lord, I thank you for our church. There are so many people that are really eager to learn the Bible. I spoke this morning with a dear mother who has such a burden that her children would come to believe in Jesus. That on Christmas morning, it would be about Jesus. May all of us have a great burden to celebrate the birth of Christ because we understand what the Bible teaches about this great act of God becoming a man. So bless your word now in Jesus' name, amen. All right, the first reason why Jesus became a man, and we talked about this last week, is Jesus became a man so he could reveal God to us. Okay, let's try that again. Is this thing dead? Anybody got some help for me? Can you give me the first one, Rob? Not working. Okay, back it up. Thank you. I'll give away my stuff here. All right. Okay, number one, so he could reveal God to us. What do you think about this? God is infinite. The Bible says the heavens and the highest heavens can't contain him. He's this awesome, unlimited being. How in the world are we going to have any clue what he's like? Okay? It's kind of crazy. The Bible says don't even make an image of him. The reason why, God says, to whom will you liken me? That's a waste of your time to try to draw an image of me. A little boy one time was drawing a picture in Sunday school. Just a little kid. Teacher said, what are you drawing? He said, I'm drawing God. He said, oh, honey, don't do that. The Bible says that we shouldn't make any image. After all, we don't know what God looks like. He said, give me a couple more minutes. You will then. <laughs> the problem is, if God stayed in his original spirit being, we wouldn't really have much of a, a sense of who is he and what's he like. So John chapter 1, verse 18, and this is where the dullest pencil is better than the sharpest memory. I met a lady yesterday who I preached as her pastor 20 years ago. She said, Pastor, I still tell kids that. The dullest pencil is better than the sharpest memory. So I'm going to give you some verses and some thoughts, and you're not going to remember these unless you have a photographic memory. And some of you do, but you lost the film, so write it down anyway. <laughs> so write these down and just think, could I teach this to somebody? John 1.18 says, no one has seen God at any time. His only son has revealed him. Now, I want you to think about this. So Jesus comes down to earth, and part of his job is to reveal to us what God is like. Hebrews 1.3 says he's the radiance of God's glory. He's the exact representation of his nature. So the first thing he did was he revealed God's glory. God is glorious. If we could see him right now, he dwells in unapproachable light. Problem is, we would be the mosquito on the, the, the purple light. We'd be fried. That's what he told Moses. You can't see me in all my glory. You'd be consumed. One day we'll see him, but because of our sin, we can't see him in his fullness. But for now, Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. He came down to this earth, and, and the Bible says, and we beheld his glory. Every time he did a miracle, John would say, and we beheld his glory. When he took them up on the Mount of Transfiguration, and he and he shone bright as the sun. He showed the glory of God. But he also revealed the character and attributes of God. He showed us what God is like. In fact, three years after calling his disciples, and they're with him 24-7, he says to them the night before he's going to go back to heaven, he says, I'm going back to the Father. And, 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 and Philip, he gets it. He goes, wait, wait, wait. He goes, show us your Father. And Jesus says, Philip, have you been with me this long? If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And again, I'll remind you, I've had people say to me, when I read about God in the Bible, he scares me. But when I read about Jesus, I kind of relate to him. Make the connection. When you read about Jesus, that is God. Now, here's why that's so incredibly important. Among other reasons, why it's so important is, how am I supposed to be like God? The Bible says be imitators of God, 
right? Now, some of you are doing a pretty good job of ruling over others and dominating like God. But no, no, no. We're supposed to be like God. And the means by which we are to be like God is we imitate Jesus. Now it becomes very practical. Jesus was born so that he could live on this earth. He could suffer. He could resist temptation. He could have enemies. He could learn to pray. He became our role model, our example. This is what we're doing. He's what we should be doing. So the New Testament makes a big deal about this. Peter says in 1 Peter 2, For you have been called for this purpose since Christ suffered you for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps. So, so by revealing God to us, now I can get the, the WWJD rolling in my mind and heart. I can think, okay, how would Jesus treat his children? How would Jesus respond when someone said that to him? How would Jesus respond if he had a difficult spouse? Or how would, what would Jesus do at work here? The problem is there are too many people that say they know Jesus, but 1 John 2 verse 6 says this, the one who says he abides in Jesus ought to walk in the same manner as he walked. In other words, we should be living lives that are imitating Christ. And I get it, we're not going to get this perfect, but that's the essence of discipleship. We say our mission is to, to advance the gospel and make disciples. A disciple is a forgiven follower who's becoming like Christ, right? And so how do I become like Christ? Well, I'm reading his word. I'm praying. The word of God is showing me. And then I'm speaking the word of Christ into one another's lives. The Bible says, let the words of Jesus dwell in you richly. Teach and admonish one another. And so what a blessing that I can... I can read my Bible and see how Jesus handled broken people, how he would reach out and say, go and sin no more, how he was full of integrity, how he hated sin, how he loved children, how he was full of patience and mercy, how he prayed, how, how, he, how he overcame Satan. Jesus revealed God to us, and the rest of our lives, we have this privilege of becoming like him. See, remember, when God first created Adam, he said, I'm going to make you in my image right? Jesus is the perfect image of God. And here's what happened. We got in a train wreck, right? Man was made in the image of God. When Adam and Eve sinned, man, that image of God, can we say, busted, distorted, twisted, corrupted, but it's still there. If I ride by a, a car that's been in a bad accident, it's burned up, it's twisted, but I don't go, what happened to that elephant? Because I see, a, I see a, a tire, I see a mirror. The same way people can, can, unbelievers can reflect little evidences of creativity and kindness and love and sacrifice because they're made in the image of God. But they got nothing going on the inside because they're dead in their sins. But when we get saved, the Bible says we are now being renewed into the image of Christ. So lock into this. Christmas brought a Savior who could, who could say, live like me, be like me. And one day, God's going to finish that. Romans chapter 8 says, for whom he foreknew, he predestined that we would be conformed to the image of his son. What a glorious thought that God revealed Jesus to us. But that's not the only reason Jesus became a man. He became a man so he could relate to us and relay his help to us. I want to thank both of you who are writing these down. That was awesome. You know, the rest of you are like, my screensaver's on. Can't wait to have some of those cookies. All right, now, what do I mean by that? Look in Hebrews chapter 2, in verse 17. The author of Hebrews is trying to show how Christ is better than angels. And how Christ didn't give his help to angels, but he chose to give help to his elect, the seed of Abraham, verse 16. So, so he says, and these are all like answering the question, why did Jesus become a man? Well, look, therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things. He had to become a human like us. Why? That he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. Now look at verse 18. 
For since he was tempted, see, he was made like us, in those things which he suffered, he's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. So you see what we got here? He can relate, and then he can relay his help to us, right? When my wife was in labor, I couldn't, I couldn't offer a whole lot of help because I, 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 you know, I could go, try doing this, right? But, but I've never been there, done that, and I thank the Lord for that. Hallelujah, right? <laughs> but Jesus knows what we've been through. He knows what you're feeling. He suffered, you name it. He has been there, done that, and now he can say, look, I know what you're going through. Sometimes we're like, you just don't get me. People don't, even husbands and wives, Sometimes I laugh, people go, oh, I just got this book, it's called Men Are From Mars and Women Are From Venus, and it shows how different they are. And I go, hey, I got a book that was written thousands of years ago. It says, husbands live with your wives in an understanding way, right? Like, duh, we're different. And sometimes we don't get one another. You don't get me, do you? And some people have zero compassion. I remember once saying to a guy, I said, man, I'm really struggling. I began to pour out my heart. This is many years ago. This guy was a Christian leader. He says to me, man, you're messed up. You need to get a counselor. Man, you're messed up. You need to get a counselor. Well, both of those things were true. But pity his poor soul to say that, right? So so look at the book of Hebrews, chapter 4 now. Again, the author's going to say, look, this isn't pie in the sky. This is down to earth, day to day. I'm struggling. I'm alone. I tried it. It's not working. Verse 15. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness. Jesus can relate. He has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. You're like, Jesus wasn't tempted to look at porn. Jesus was tempted sexually. Jesus was tempted just like we are, but he didn't sin. And as a result of that, look at verse 16. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find, now look, grace to help. Relay help. Lord Jesus, I need your help. Nobody seems to get me, but you get me. Now when I sing up here, I don't sing up here to give a testimony, but I love what Martin Luther said. He said, I want to put the word of God and good music in the hearts of people. There's some beautiful songs about how Jesus gets you no matter what you're experiencing and how he wants to help you. And some of them were written by suffering people like Negro spirituals when they're in the midst of all of their their pain and sorrow. There's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one, no, not one. None understands all my soul's diseases. No, not one, no, not one. Jesus knows all about my troubles. He will help when the day is done. There's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one, no, not one. What do you do when you're hurting? I tell my friends or I go on Facebook and talk about it. How about this? Run to Jesus. Remember that good old gospel hymn? Do thy friends despise, forsake thee? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. So Jesus, I thank you. You came down to earth. You're not up there in your holy temple going, get it together. You, 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 you showed us the way, and I can cry out to you. And the Lord Jesus will bless you and meet you. I've been there, right? I know what it's like to weep and and frustrated and confused and condemned. And you take it to Jesus and he helps you. And we need to live that and teach others. Oh, I love this next one. How about this? He came to ruin Satan and his power. I like the word ruin. Ruin sometimes, right? I help coach basketball with Karen's basketball team and I don't think the coach is here today, but I I love sometimes when we're up against a tough team, he goes, let's go out there and wreck those guys. And I'm like, I know what he means. It's a metaphor. Like we're not actually, we don't want their bodies to be broken and bleeding, but we we want to get the victory. But you know, Jesus came to wreck Satan, ruin him, 
And I, and I like that. Look at Hebrews chapter 2. You see, before I became a Christian, I had a tremendous fear of death. I was terrified to die. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I didn't have the gospel promises. I didn't have the hope that Jesus said, he that believes in me, though he should die, yet shall he live. I didn't know that, and so I was terrified about death. And Satan, he has that death card. There's this mysterious thing in the Bible that when, when Adam and Eve sinned, I don't know why, but in God's providence, he didn't ask for my opinion, he gave Satan authority over death and the kingdoms of this world. So when Satan tempted Jesus, he said to Jesus, if you'll bow down to me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of this world. And Jesus is like, no, I'll pass on that, because he knew he's going to get them God's way, right? But Satan said, these things have been handed over to me. So Satan's the prince of the power of the air. And, and somehow he had the power of death. Now, what I don't want you to think, I want you to know what the Bible teaches. He's not the landlord of hell. So in all those jokes about, ah, oh, the devil's going to yell at me because I'm selling air conditioners down there. He's not the landlord of hell. He's going to hell. Matthew 25 says, God created hell for Satan and his angels. But somehow he had power over death. But when the Lord Jesus died and rose again, he snatched those keys from the devil. And in Revelation chapter 1, this is what he said. He said, I am he who was dead and I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Right? So look at Hebrews chapter 2. The author comes alongside. He says, you want to know why Jesus came for Christmas? You see that little manger? You want to know why? Look at verse 14. Since then the children, that's us, we share in flesh and blood... He himself likewise partook of the same. He, he, in other words, he became a man. Why? That through his death, he might render powerless him who had the power of death. That is the devil. And he might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. I know that from my own heart and soul. I was a subject to slavery because I was afraid but when the Lord Jesus came into my life, he rescued me out of that. He transferred me from the kingdom of darkness, and he did this for you, into the kingdom of his beloved son. Believe that. He has no power over you. He has no power over your death or your judgment. That has been wrested away from him, and Christ looked forward to that. In fact, Jesus practically smacked the Pharisees upside the head when he's casting out demons, and they're going, you're doing that because you have the devil inside of you. He goes... Is it, I'm paraphrasing, is that me or is that one of the stupidest things I ever heard? Why would the devil cast out the devil? But rather he said, how can you plunder the strong man's house until you bind the strong man? When the Lord Jesus came to earth, he began to predict that on that cross, he was going to defeat Satan. He was going to wreck him. He was going to ruin him. He was going to defeat him. In fact, he said in the upper room in John 12, now judgment is on this world. Now the ruler of the world is cast out. As the disciples were casting out demons, he said, I saw Satan falling from heaven like lightning. He said, I'm going to send the spirit and he will convict the world of judgment. John 16, 11, because the ruler of this world has been judged. Now, he didn't ask me for my opinion on how he should ruin him. Because if it was up to me, I'd say, just nuke him now. But he has a very unusual strategy. Colossians chapter 2, verse 15 says, Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he made a public display of them. So I don't know what happened in the heavenly realms, but somewhere between Christ's death and resurrection and exaltation, as he encountered Satan and the principalities and powers, listen to what it says. It says he disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. I didn't see it with my eyes, but I see it with my soul. I see him putting a beat down on Satan. I see every one of those demons bowing down and him snatching their weapons and him telling them, you're defeated once for all. I'm alive forevermore. But I want you to go over to 1 John chapter 3 because it's really intriguing how he's unraveling the devil and ruining him gradually. We all hate it, but it's true of children. One builds something, like blocks or a sandcastle, 
the other comes to wreck it, right? My work, right? And then sometimes, sadly, it's someone's life work. They ruined my life work. But there came a day when Jesus Christ came to earth and he said, Satan, I'm ruining your life's work. But what was Satan's work? What was his sandcastle? Look at this verse. This is powerful. 1 John 3, verse 7 says, Little children, let no one deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil. If you say, hey, so your name's Satan, devil, what do you do for a living? I sin. I love it. I promote it. I empower it. I foster it. I propagate it. I started a long, long time ago before the earth began when I was up in heaven, the great cherub Lucifer. And I said, I will be like God. The devil is continuing to sin. And he's bringing along a massive amount of followers, both demons and humans. But Jesus came and he said, I have come to destroy the works of the devil. But one of the cool things about looking things up in the Bible now, you don't have to be a a rocket scientist it's all Greek to me. There are programs now and things that you can look up Greek words. There are a number of words for destroy in the Bible. For those of you who have had any Greek, you remember that one of the words you used for your, your learning was the word lua, which means to loose. It can mean to destroy, but it often means to loose. That's the word that's used here. So it could be translated, the Son of God has come that he might loose the works of the devil. And I think Perhaps John used this to indicate that this is how he's going to destroy the devil. Because every single time that someone gets saved, he's loosening up his grip. Isn't this the essence of what it means to build the church? Jesus said, I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail. The gates of hell is what holds back all of the unbelievers. They're held captive by Satan. Every time Jesus saves a soul, the gates of hell will not prevail. One by one, he's losing his power. He's losing his authority. He's losing his kingdom. The book of Revelation says he knows that he has a short time. But the best part is the ending. Because the Bible says in in Genesis 3.15, God said to him, I will put enmity between you and the seed of the woman, and he will crush your head. And there's going to come a day when, when the Lord Jesus, this is right out of the Bible, Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, it says, the devil who deceived people was thrown in the lake of fire and he will be tormented day and night forever and ever. It is written, it will be done. I was in a prayer meeting once with a young man who had just come to Christ. He said, dear Lord, please save the devil. I said, what are you doing? He said, well, I figured Jesus wants to save the worst people. He'll save the devil. I said, no, he's not going to save the devil. You never want to pray against the Bible. It is written, He will be tormented day and night forever. And we're going to be there. Are you ready for this? The Apostle Paul in Romans 16, as he thought about that original prophecy, that the Lord Jesus will crush Satan. Because of our unity, our identity with Christ, he's in us and we're in him. We're the body, he's the head. Paul took that passage and in Revelation, Romans chapter 16, listen to this verse. Romans 16, 20, look it up. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. I don't know exactly how, but as Jesus brings Satan down once and for all and destroys him permanently, I don't know if he's going to say, everybody put your foot up here. Let's do this together. But hallelujah, the Son of God has come to ruin Satan. In the meantime, be very careful When you see these preachers on TV, I'll punch the devil in the face. Stop it. The Bible says not even the archangel Michael railed against Satan. We don't speak about these angelic authorities, but rather he said, the Lord rebuke you. I don't even talk to the devil. I say, the Lord rebuke you, devil. I quote the scriptures to him. So let's have a posture of humility. We watch and pray he's a roaring lion. But praise Jesus. He is ruined. And Christ is has won the victory. There's a fourth reason. Jesus came so he could reign forever over us. You say, Pastor, where do you get that from? 
Well, it's actually from one of our famous Christmas verses. But, but maybe you haven't thought about this. When the Lord Jesus appeared to Mary in Luke chapter 1, he said, you'll conceive in your womb, verse 31, you'll bear a son, you'll name him Jesus. We're like, yeah, 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 because he'll save his people from their sins. And I'll go, no, that's Matthew. This is what he said to Mary. He said, your child will be great, understatement. He will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. Ready? And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And then, and then the angel says this. And by the way, his kingdom will have no end. Now, I, I try to illustrate this. I go, years ago, it probably would have been a really cool thing if, if God appeared to you and said, your child's going to be the president. I don't think anybody would want that anymore. They're like, I don't want that, right? But imagine if God said, to you, your child's going to be the president. You'd be like, that's really cool. Or, or if we were in England, your child's going to be the king. You'd be like, that's really cool. But when he says, he's going to be the king forever and his kingdom will have no end, then they're like, wait, what? And even Dave had to, had to wrestle with this. He's like, wait, if he's one of my descendants, how can he reign forever? And the Holy Spirit began to reveal to David that this anointed Mashiach, this Christ, would be both human, one of your descendants, but he'd also be divine so he could live forever. And so, so David's figuring, well, how can he live forever? Because people die. And so the Spirit of God revealed to David that the Messiah would die and then rise again. So David wrote in Psalm 16, you will not leave your Messiah to undergo decay, your Holy One. He, he knew that somehow his descendant would come out of the grave and reign as king forever. And you know, Dave understood this. If you've never read, listen to me calling him Dave like we're on a first name basis. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. Dave, David, right? So. Now Listen. When David wrote Psalm 2, go home and read Psalm 2 someday. It's really fun. David became the king over Israel. And basically, God said, you're the highest king of the earth, right? You're going to be the king over everybody else. You're the highest king. Now, how'd that go with the other kings? You think the Canaanite kings were excited about that? The Moabite kings? Eh. All the enemies of God hated him. All the other kings hated him. And so David wrote Psalm 2 about himself but also about one day how God was going to make Jesus king and reign forever. He said in Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and the Gentiles imagine these vain things? The rulers of this world take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed. That's me, David's going, that's me. Saying, we won't have this man ruler us, this David Jew. Not, he's not ruling over us, right? We'll fight him and kill him. And then the Holy Spirit reveals to David, I will tell of the decree of the Lord. The Lord said to me, thou art my son. This is what he said to David. You're my son. Today I have begotten thee. I've made you king, right? But David was also prophesying about Christ. He said, God said to me, David goes, ask of me and I'll give you the nations of your inheritance. But ultimately that was Christ, Right? The Bible says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. God scoffs at them. He's like, what do you mean you won't have my king reign over you? One day my Messiah is going to come and reign over you. And he'll dash you with a rod of iron. So at the end of the psalm, David gives some very down-to-earth advice. He goes, come here, kings. Come here, rulers. Now, therefore, O kings, be counseled from me. He says, kiss the son. Do homage to him. Get down on your feet and kiss King Jesus. lest his wrath soon be kindled and you perish in the way. That's a beautiful psalm. You know who the first guys that get that were? The wise men, right? Who in the world bows down and worships a baby? Oh, wait, I take that back. I've seen the way some of you with your firstborn. <laughs> who in the world comes when a baby's born and says, where is he who has been born king of the Jews for we have come to worship him. You see, the essence of the message of the Bible is that God's not holding a, a committee. Who do you think is going to rule the earth? 
Revelation chapter 11 says, when the, the seventh angel sounds, now the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Isn't that going to be a good day? The songwriter said, Jesus shall reign wherever the sun does its successive journeys run. His kingdom shines from shore to shore. While wanes shall, moon shall wax and wane no more. See, there's going to come a day from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same. The Lord Jesus is going to reign and rule on this earth forever. And you're either in or out. And you and I are no different from the Jews in the first century when Jesus said, I've come to be your king. And they said, we won't have this man rule over us. And you're like, well, you know, I mean, I, I don't hate Jesus. He's a good guy. If you don't submit to him, obey and trust and follow him, you're a rebel. But if you come to him and you say, Lord Jesus, come reign in my heart. You see, you already have a king on your heart. His name is Lord Majesty Self. And if you're tired of him reigning, then I would dethrone him today and invite the Lord Jesus to rule and reign. And that's what we're doing as followers of Christ. We're seeking the kingdom of God. Lord Jesus, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth. When he comes back, it'll get done. right? But in between that time, he's not willing that men should perish. We seek his kingdom. But lastly, save the best for last. The primary reason why he came, first, foremost, and for the ultimate glory of God is that he could redeem us by his blood. There's always a shadow of the cross over the cradle. Jesus was always talking about this. He said, I, I, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and give my life a ransom for many. A ransom. The Bible says Jesus purchased the church with his blood. The Bible says in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins. He came to become a man he had to be a man so he could die for us. He had to be God so he could absorb in six hours one Friday all the punishment we deserve. The Bible says he bore our sins in his body on the cross. He's the Lamb of God that took away the sins of the world. In the Old Testament, they'd offer bulls and goats and sheep and it's blood all over the place. And God says, I'll just cover your sin. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. But the Bible says God prepared a body for him. And by the one offering of the body of Jesus Christ, we are forgiven and sanctified forever. Please say amen if you believe that. Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe. So whoever told you that you have to be a good person to get to heaven, beat that lie to the ground. Throw it to the ground and say, I don't have to be a good person. I have a good savior. Whoever told you, well, you're going to have to go to purgatory. Tell them, that's not what my Bible says. My savior said it is finished. Jesus washed you paid for you, purchased your salvation. That's why he came, to grow up and die for us, not just to be a good teacher and tell us, blessed are you. I'll never forget when the Lord first opened my eyes to understand this. I was in a gospel meeting with 10,000 people were there that day. Huge thing down in the Civic Center. And this guy had a little simple PowerPoint. Remember the old PowerPoint, little, little overhead, no, not even PowerPoint, overhead projector. And he draws a little cross and a little stick man and, 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 he, and, he, and, he, and he draws an arrow of my sins up on the cross. And he says, see, when Jesus shed his blood, that's so you could be redeemed. He bought you. He paid for you. And now you can have full and free forgiveness. And I welled up with tears because God opened my eyes. And we stood up that day in 1979 and we sang, redeemed, how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed and so happy in Jesus, his child and forever I am. And 39 years later, I'm still singing that song. And when this poor lisping dying tongue lies silent in the grave, then in a nobler, sweeter song, I'll sing his power to save. See, this is the essence of the Christian faith. We worship the Lamb. You're like, well, that seems weird to me. Well, I want to get you ready for heaven. When you get to heaven, guess what? Revelation 5 says we're going to fall down and say, worthy is the Lamb that was slain, for he redeemed us to God with his blood. 
You've purchased us from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. It ain't going to be a bunch of white Americans. They're going to be people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Hallelujah. All of his own, his elect, his children. He said, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. And we pray for the gospel to go to the ends of the earth. And maybe God will tug on some of us to take it there. But that's what we're here for. The Bible says Christ bought us with his blood. We're not our own. So let me close by reminding you, if these five things are true and you're going to teach them to others, then, then let's think about the implications. Number one, if he revealed God to us, are you growing in your knowledge of Christ and becoming like him? If, are you learning to take your burdens to him? If he can relate and relay his help, are your knees getting comfortable at the cross, finding grace? Are you drawing near to God and rejoicing that you've been delivered from Satan and resisting the devil? Are you willingly surrendered to the King Jesus? Are you redeemed? From time to time, I like to give an opportunity for people to just publicly identify with Christ, to just go, I'm in. Because this is the essence of being a Christ follower. Jesus said, don't be ashamed of me before men. He said, confess me before men. And there are different ways to do that, and ultimately baptism is the ideal way. But when God saves someone, he doesn't save you to be a secret service agent. He saves you so that you can let, the, let the, the world know that I'm forgiven. I'm a follower of Christ. I believe this. Count me in. I'm with him. I lash myself to the cross. I believe he died and rose again. So, so there are times that people will make this confession, this profession, and they do it before others. Yesterday I was at a funeral of a dear friend 59 years old, godly man. Some of you know him, Bryant Geating. Just a, a, a dynamic Christian man. I don't get it, right? I could have made some recommendations, but the Lord's like, nope, I'm taking him, right? He has five kids and his oldest son, precious son. I love this kid. I've known him since he was a boy. Taught him at Cairn. But years ago, his son walked away from Christ. Gave up on the church. But yesterday at that funeral, as the five kids stood up, he went first and he said, many of you know that I walked away, that I didn't believe this stuff. I told my dad, I don't feel it. But he said, I want you to know that over the last two months, what I saw and now I feel, he basically made his public profession. I'm back with God. I want to run up and pick him up and sing hallelujah, right? He made a public profession in front of 800 people. I'm back with Christ. This morning, I felt the Lord leading me. Give an invitation, Tom. Maybe there's somebody that's never stood publicly and said, I'm a Christ follower. And believe it or not, I was standing in the lobby before the service, and there was a guy that's been coming for a few months. He said, hey, are you ever going to give one of those invitations again? I said, yeah, I'm giving one this morning. Why? He goes, because I want to come forward. And he did. Hallelujah. His name is Mike. So there might be somebody else this morning, and we're going to sing a song. Now, let me explain this. You, you don't become a Christian by coming up here. That's like saying you become a monkey by going to the zoo. Coming up here doesn't make you a Christian. The Holy Spirit tugs at our hearts, and sometimes we just go, I want people to know that I am a follower of Christ, right? If you've already done it, you don't need to do it. If you don't do it, it doesn't mean you're not going to heaven. But, but sometimes this is a catalyst to your spiritual growth when you go, I have decided to follow Jesus. I'm not going undercover. Maybe some of you have wandered far from Christ and you're saying this morning, I want to come back to him and I just want to stand up and say, pray for me because I want to confess that Jesus is Lord. If no one comes, I won't weep because I know the power of the word of God. The Lord's word is like a hammer and a fire, but the Holy Spirit, he awakens, he calls his elect and if he's calling you time and time again, I've heard people say, I don't know what happened. I just got up and came. If the spirit's moving in your heart and you've never confessed your allegiance to Christ. And you come and stand as we sing. Please stay seated. Let's sing. I hear the Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. 
Find in me thine all in all. Sing it out. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. We're going to sing one more line. I understand this. I'm not one of, if you've probably seen evangelists, they'll drag it out for two hours. I'm not trying to get people to do something. God's not moving in your heart. But the Bible says in Acts chapter 2, with many other words, Peter kept exhorting these people, be saved from this perverse generation. And if you're struggling right now, who are you struggling with? What will people think? Who cares what they think? What will Jesus think? So again, it doesn't mean you'll never go to heaven if you don't come, but, but you may never want to go to heaven again like you may want to go today. So the Lord is the one who calls his elect. So if you're being called, don't wait. Get up. Stand up for Jesus. Let's sing. Lord, now indeed I find thy power and thine alone can change leopard spots and melt the heart of stone. Let's stand together. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. Amen. Jesus is awesome. He's Lord of all. I want to encourage you. Would you be in prayer? Turn off that football game at some point today and get on your knees and pray. As we have three services tomorrow, normally we'll have a thousand people sitting under the gospel. Pray that many will come to Jesus. Amen. Father, I ask that you'll bless your sheep, your precious family, your blood-bought children. We come with our bruises and our baggage, but we celebrate Christmas. We love you, Jesus. Be exalted in our lives and send us out now, your missionaries. Empower us, comfort us, and bring glory to your Father through the unfolding of your gospel drama. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a great day.